This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio. Greetings for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled Lafayette, His Extraordinary Life and Legacy. And joining me from Florida to talk about it is the author, Donald Miller. Welcome, sir, to the program. Good morning. Good How to are you, Jay? Good to visit with you. I, uh, we, in our pre, uh, pre-recording visit, I understand you are also the author of seven other books. This book on Lafayette, uh, most people have heard the name, little of his story, but don't know the details. Why did you choose to write about Lafayette? As I say in the subtitle, had an extraordinary life. He is remembered by most Americans for his role. He he, in the American Revolution, he was in, uh, commander of, you know, of, internet, of uh, continental troops in Virginia. And he chose Virginia because he had a, a, child, a, a son-like relationship with George Washington, mm. who advised him throughout his life. And one of the interesting things that most people may not know is that uh, he, through inheritance, he was a multimillionaire. Really? And he... Was um, his parent? His, he never knew his father, who was killed in a battle in in Germany, and which is the style of the family. They came from a long line of French knights, going back to the Middle Ages. And as a young boy living in the south central part of France, he w- was imbued with his family's background, and from an early age he had a a yearning for fame, which never ever left him. Why did he feel? Why did he feel drawn to Virginia specifically, or to the United States, or the the not the United States, but the the, the fresh colony? Why did he come to to this country to uh, to engage in warfare and and other activities? Well, he was attending a dinner one night that was thrown by his commandant, and a man named uh, De Broy uh, Ruffec. And, he, and this was in Metz on the eastern uh, border of, of France. And the guest of honor that night was the brother of uh, uh, George III, mm-hmm. the Duke of Gloucester. And I think for the first time ever, I'd go into who Gloucester was and why he was traveling in Europe. Anyway, he, he much opposed his brother's uh, overseeing the hiring of Germans to fight the American colonists because the Brits, the British uh, soldiers were stretched around the world defending what was then the empire. So Lafayette said the moment that he heard about the American colonists, he was with them. Of course, uh, something like 225 French officers had already gone over and they didn't fare very well because, as you know, the, the, the government, the American government, such as it was, was very, very poor, didn't have the right to tax and so forth. And so Lafayette, th- 
through the help, as I say, pretty much for the first time in English, um, through his friend the Broy, uh, was able. The Broy knew who he was, where he came from, and that he had been in the cadet guard for Louis the Fifteenth and things like that. Grew up at Versailles, knew the who, the princes who would become later uh, kings, and and he had that that great association. At one point, after he married. At the age of uh, uh, 16, uh, another uh, he married a woman who, a girl, I should say, of 14, wow. and uh, the ceremony was held. When anyway, Lafayette, believe it or not, at the age of 19, uh, suddenly had a, uh, a step uncle who was the French ambassador to the court of St. James, and they went. He and one of his new cousins went over to visit and. He had a meeting in which he met George the Third. Can you imagine? Imagine, wow! Uh, but he was just filled with a love to uh, come to America, and he at uh, the Battle of Brandywine in the early part. Well, there was about seventy-five encounters before he ever came over. You know, in the war, and he came over, but he he played a major role in the. Battle of Brandywine, which is near Chad's Ford in Pennsylvania, eastern Pennsylvania, and uh, uh, was uh, shot through the left uh, calf. Hmm. So he was, he was proud to shed blood for America. You have you have described him also as a champion of equal rights. You've also described him as a uh, person that was uh, referred to as a hero in two worlds, the United yes. uh, this continent and in Europe as well. There, he had a colorful life. Uh, you would think that privilege would have uh, diminished his enthusiasm for warfare and the other struggles. Why do you think he he uh, retained that enthusiasm? I think he was so impressed with the Americans that he met in terms of, in terms of equal rights. He tried to talk George Washington, who he called father, into uh, setting up an experimental farm in which black people, black workers could earn their freedom. When George Washington, who was just becoming president, felt it was just too much to handle at that point, plus the fact he was a southern gentleman, um, Lafayette then uh, set up with his money, he, he uh, bought and stocked a farm or plantation, if you will, in French Guiana in the Torrid Zone. And that lasted for seven years until it was crushed by the rebels and, and back in Paris by that time. Incredible. You also say yeah. that he was incarcerated for a number of years in prison yes. because of in his the, work. Exactly. In the course of his uh, rise, he was the uh, founder and first uh, uh, leader of the uh, Paris National Guard. He designed the uniform for it. He, he, did the, he designed the... French tricolor, the flag, which flies today with three colors that are in the American flag. And he rose. Uh, he, he, he rose in the army later uh, after he was the instrument, if you will. He became the policeman for uh, the royal family, meaning uh, Louis Sixteenth and Marie Antoinette, and uh, ushered them back when the women's march on Versailles, turned bloody. He protected them as the policemen, pretty much, of Paris. 
and and was pretty much that for for quite uh, quite a while. And a year after the uh, uh, the attack on the Bastille, he was in charge in that first year of pooling down the prison, which was of course anathema to and anyone in uh, among the more among the citizens of France. Yes. And uh, and then something that most Americans know nothing about uh, was instrumental in creating a tremendous pageant called La Fédération, uh, and it was set up where the Eiffel Tower is now. Of course, it wasn't was there then. It? But it's a, a three-block space in which they build a natural amphitheater by digging up the soil and mounding it up, and there were at least two decks that, and there was a, he orchestrated this presentation that this was, he thought, the end of the revolution and things would be better from 100,000 people attended this on the anniversary. Wow. And, and later and he became the, the general of the North. What he may or may not have, and probably did not know was that uh, the royal family he he was instrumental in having them come back to Paris in, instead of escaping, as they probably were going to do. And um, he then became, as I say, the general of the, of the North to def- help to, to defeat the Austrians and Prussians, who had been called on by Louis XVI to help him defeat the French army to restore him as the king. Why is your book, Lafayette, His Extraordinary Life and Legacy, important? What was the passion that drove you to write about his history? Well, when I find, found out all of these principles, for instance, I found out that uh, he advocated civil rights for all. He wrote the, he, he thought that the Declaration of Independence written by his friend Thomas Jefferson, was magnificent. And he wanted the same thing, even if possibly better, for the French. So he wrote it himself. He was uh, elected to the Chamber of Deputies, which is like the House, U.S. House of Representatives, on the liberal side. Mm-hmm. He always sat on the left and uh, uh, was instrumental in the defeat of of making sure that Napoleon didn't come back as emperor after the after the Battle of Waterloo in Belgium. In fact, he he rose and said, "We can't have him come back," and he give, gives all the the reasons for that. It's a magnificent short speech, but man, it just hits Grand because Trump. of all the thousands of soldiers that Napoleon was responsible for. They're landing on landing dead on the battlefields of Europe, mm. and in addition, he. He had certain things that, because he was imprisoned, he was caught by the Austrians as he tried to come to America. And this was in Belgium as he left the troops, mm. because you see, the Jacobins, the the rebels in Paris, uh, ordered him to come back and stand trial for treason, and he knew what that meant. As an aristocrat, he had rejected his title, but he knew that they regarded him not only as an aristocrat and death came for anyone who was an, arith- an aristocrat. His, uh, his wife's um, mother and sister and grandmother were all guillotined Ouch. for that crime. And 
so he knew he had to had to leave but he didn't expect to be captured they hoped to get out but they were captured how long donald did it take for you to get the details at least to your satisfaction correct and uh, get to the point where you could share lafayette's story well, I would say I, I've been working on the book about 12 years and I've tried mm. to market it for another two. Mm. So it's been a consuming thing for me. Originally, I went over to France and I visited oh, five or six sites that Lafayette is famous for having been to. I've been to his houses, things like that. And I just felt that there was so much there that didn't need to be done. I would say one of the most remarkable things that I found out, I have a section that's uh, after Lafayette died in 1834, there were a number of things that happened posthumously that didn't that are so fascinating that I just couldn't put them down and just end it with his life the way most biographers do. Yes, I just mentioned the most to me the most interesting one that Pierre Laval, the French premier during World War II, who collaborated with the Nazis. In 1935, his daughter and his son-in-law, came, who was a direct descendant of Lafayette, came to him and said, we would like to have your help in acquiring Lafayette's home, which is called Chateau, uh, uh, Chateau de Lagrange, and it's about 30, 30 miles southeast of Paris. It was in very bad shape. Hmm. And Pierre Laval uh, provided the money. And I find it highly ironic that he would provide the money for the, for what the man who is known as the champion of freedom. Uh, An amazing... Or the, apos- or, the apostle, or the apostle of liberty yes. would have later on have succumbed. He, he felt he had no other choice. And it was... It was either going with the Nazis or, or watch them destroy France. It's and, of course, for that, he was later captured, stood trial, and was assassinated. It's an amazing story. Five hundred, Almost 444 pages. This uh, obviously would have taken a lot of effort and uh, delving into the past of Lafayette. You also, uh, one, one, one of your chapters has an interesting title, at least from my perspective, considering that Lafayette lived in the 1700s. I'm not mm-hmm. sure what the title means. It says Tennis Court Oath. What is a Tennis Court Oath referred to? Well, I spend many... First of all, I have to tell you that he fought in three revolutions. Yes. And that's why we have such such a long book to take care of that. Um, it took six years. Most people don't know this. It took six years for the king to lose his power. Slowly. He was absolute, you know, when, it, when the... Correct. When the difficulties began, and through one change after another, the Constitutional Assembly and so forth. Well, in the course of, of this, the, the delegates who were asked by the king originally to come together to see how he could solve his tax problems, the, the nation's tax problems, and they at one point were meeting, um, oh, let's say about a half at the palace at Versailles, but not not close, but, you know, um, let's say half a mile in a special building called the uh, Building of the Small Pleasures, which mm-hmm. was where the, the fets and the fireworks and so forth were arranged. And they were met there. And so 
in the course of that, they were locked out of the building that they were meeting in, and they immediately went over to the tennis court. Really? Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but there's an indoor tennis court at Versailles, which you can visit, of course. Correct. And one of the things I found fascinating, in French, ten, uh, tennis is called jeu de paume, and that means hand game. Tennis began as a hand. You used your hand, not with a racket. Fascinating. The, one of the reasons I wrote the book was because it helped me refresh myself with French and to have that wonderful experience. So in my book, I use, pretty much use the, the French uh, spelling sometimes. For instance, I don't say D-U-K-E. I use D-U-C, which is the, mm. word for, the same word, of course. And I think that helps the reader come into the book and, and realize that we're dealing with some extraordinary people here. Incredible. Lafayette, his extraordinary life and legacy, and my author, Donald Miller. Why should my listeners get a copy of this, and where can they get a copy of it? Well, it's listed with Amazon.com and also uh, with uh, BNN.com and, uh, and other sources. And I, a friend of mine is expecting to have the book uh, in his hands today from that source. Wonderful. And, uh, they can also do a search under your name, of course, uh, Donald Miller, M-I-L-L-E-R, standard yes, spelling, and find right. not only this book but the others that you've written. So Several you, of, of other other ones are still on there, yeah. Incredible. Well, I hope that we can visit again about Lafayette or whatever might happen. Is there a sequel to this uh, edition coming on? No, I may, I may do my memoirs. My, I, as, a, as a journalist and interviewer, very much like yourself, I... Of several hundred people that uh, I would like to uh, give my points of view on uh, along the way. Now, as someone, another writer said to me when she was asked a similar question, why don't you write a memoir about these people that you met? And she said to me, but you know, Donald, I, your interview was just a, a few minutes or maybe uh, an hour at the most. And I thought, that's very true. And so that true. sort of stopped me for a while. But then one day, when I was out biking, I thought to myself, wait a minute, I can just do brief paragraphs and make my impressions. Well, as it turns out, I've got more than enough for a book. Incredible. Uh, Donald, what was the most uh, exciting or unusual discovery you made about Lafayette and his visits to the United States? Well, to find out the reason that he came back as a wildly lionized hero of the American Revolution 41 years after its that had occurred. The country was kind of in a funk at the time. It, it didn't seem to have much leadership. So the country went wild over Lafayette, who came for a specific reason, and that was to lay the cornerstone at the uh, Bunker Hill Monument in Boston. Fascinating. And, and the fascinating thing is, uh, even though uh, John Quincy Adams, the president, admired Lafayette tremendously, and even had him stay at the end of his visit at the White House, was an opponent of the Masons. And so he refused to be the um, general chairman and the person who would be saluted. So guess who took his place? Really? (laughs) Monsieur Lafayette. That's right. Fascinating. And he was given a tremendous welcome before something like 4,000 people on the hillside there. None of them could probably hear what they were saying because of, you know, no PR system. <laughs> but anyway, there was a tremendous luncheon that uh, only men could attend afterward. And um, 
and Daniel Webster greeted him with a fantastic salutation. Thank you for sharing the Lafayette story. And again, it is a uh, a well-researched book, almost for, well, it's 444 pages or so. And uh, the title again is Lafayette, His Extraordinary Life and Legacy. And our author, Donald Miller, shares the story of Lafayette and how he impacted not only Europe, but also the United States in uh, the early years. Thank you again for joining me today. Thank you, Jay, very much. My pleasure for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Congratulations on being the proud owner of an adorable, soft, cuddly, sweet-smelling, smiling, cooing, hungry, tired, gassy, screaming little bundle of joy. So now what? Where's the owner's manual for this thing? Where are my instructions? Right here. It's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lipman on toginet.com. Infant care specialist Blythe Lippman has worked with babies for over 20 years and works extensively with new parents providing workshops, in-home visits, tips, and daily phone calls to ease those frazzled nerves. With baby and toddler instructions, you can get the advice you need on how to survive and enjoy your baby's first year. For more information on Blythe and how she can help you, go to babyinstructions.com. From 32 ways to stop a baby from crying to 14 ways to get a baby to eat and so much more. It's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lipman on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio. Greetings for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled Forever Calais Mom, a story about life, my child's death, and what forever really means. And my guest joining me from near Calgary, Alberta, Canada, is author and mom, Lorene Huliski. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Jay. I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. This is a uh, a story that's uh, heart-wrenching, uh, a tough story, because it deals with uh, a very personal tragedy that happened in your life. Share with my listeners a little of your background and how this book got to be written. I'm pretty much as normal a person as uh, anyone can be. There, I grew up on a farm in southern Saskatchewan. Um, you know, had the same sort of dreams of a white picket fence and life that uh, most young people wanted, at least back in that era, considering I'm 60, so it's a little bit different for the young people now. But um, then I just, through a series of uh, happenstances, ended up uh, in Hawaii um, and fell in love and had a beautiful daughter and moved back to Canada and grew up and ended up in Calgary. And it was there that uh, my life took a a very sudden and dramatic turn from what I imagined it to be. Your daughter, Kalei, was born in Hawaii, uh, and shortly after that you returned to to Canada, your home country, uh, because you felt it was a better situation for her, and things just didn't work out in Hawaii. No, um, you know, sometimes uh, vacation romances uh, tend to not have longevity, and and I think that was sort of the situation for for me and and Kalei's dad, Peter. Your personal background, besides being an author, are there other 
uh, I guess, focuses in your life that you have pursued besides uh, besides the, the writing of this story? I'm an analyst by profession. I've worked in several industries. Right now I'm in the oil and gas industry. Uh, my, na- my natural nature is to try to understand how things work and trying to track molecules and gas pipelines uh, fits well with that tendency. The story of Calais. Uh, share with my listeners how it came about that uh, Calais is no longer with us. What happened to her life and why was it cut short? Well, again, we were pretty normal mom and, and daughter, and at a teenager's, teenage years hit, and she started to go off uh, her path a bit. School became less important. She started hanging out with a, a new and, and a higher-risk group of friends, and I knew she was in trouble. So uh, after months of you know, trying to hold on to her, we, uh, my family and I staged in what I call an intervention, and we sort of tricked her and uh, got her to my parents' ranch for a couple of weeks, thinking that I'll give her some time to uh, get her head back on straight. Mm. And I think we accomplished that. When we returned to uh, Calgary, um, she had sort of one last event she wanted to do with these friends, and sadly enough, uh, it was an overnight camping trip on the way back. Uh, the driver of the car fell asleep. We believe everyone in the vehicle was asleep, and uh, six kids died that day. Ouch. In a head-on crash. Unbelievable. How long ago did that take place? Your daughter was, uh, what, about 15 at the time? She was 16 and a 16 half. 16 and a half, okay. And it would have been 14 years ago this Thursday. Her death anniversary is in a couple of days. Ouch. And you have spent 14 years thinking and analyzing the circumstances surrounding Clay's death and trying to get your, your head wrapped around it. What did you finally decide was the purpose for sharing your story? The real purpose was how many people live this secret life. Nobody wants to be forced into an unimaginable event, whether it's the death of a child you know, your house gets burned down in a, in a forest fire, cancer, all those things are unimaginable. But what happens is people don't want to know about that world. They prefer it to be unimaginable. So what happens then is everyone that is having to live that way does it in secret. And I think that's just such a cry and shame. Here we are wanting to know everything about, you know, sort of what I consider slightly off-the-wall people through reality shows mm-hmm. and want to look behind the curtain to see how they live. But, you know, their next-door neighbor who is having to build a, a new lifetime in a different world uh, that has many, many, many challenges to it, they don't want to know anything about. So there's not enough written. We kind of tend to stick with, you know, sort of the standard five stages of grief. I believe that we need to add color to that and share more about that so that not only can the people who are forced into it have more information, but everybody around them can be more empathetic and supportive. At the time of uh, Calais' death and the burial, and you were visiting her graveside, and at that moment, another individual 
happened to be there that intersected with your life. Share a little of Sandra's story as well. Sandra's son, Jarrett, died from a brain aneurysm. Hmm. And she, so they had a few years on me in this journey. And it, I was very fortunate that at that point in her journey, Sandy was ready to finally look up and put her arms around someone else. And I happened to be that someone else. Beautiful timing and, and appropriate timing. What did you learn or what have you taken away from this experience besides the, the obvious deep grief that any parent would experience? What have you learned as a person? Is there something that's a, a positive of uh, this story? I, I think that I've you know, tapped into obviously strengths of myself that I didn't know I, I had. But I think probably the one thing that gives me pause every now and then is just how much we can push our brains to think far beyond anything we ever thought we could when we really have to. I I often tell people sometimes I thought so hard trying to find the right way to explain an emotion or something that was basically unspeakable that my head hurt from it. But when you have to, you can find ways. And I think we have a whole world of great thinkers out there that just need to push themselves a little bit and maybe share what they learn. Is there anything in the, what I would call, or many people would refer to as a spiritual blessing or, uh, I guess, discovery that you perhaps made during this journey? Absolutely. Um, You know, I took faith with a grain of salt. I was a fair-weather you know, God believer. Uh, I live every day with faith. I have, my life is surrounded with angels. Um, I do my very best to uh, hold on to faith. It's one of the most slippery things to hold on to, Mm -hmm. but I work at it every day. You have talked also, uh, one of your your, uh, chapters is titled The Red Phone. What does that chapter deal with? Basically, what it, it deals with is a lot of, it was a way that I found to be able to try to illustrate how much time I spent communicating with my dead child, how much time I spent communicating with God, and how that helped me survive those early uh, days and weeks of death. You have also titled one chapter, Future Blackboard. Is that future hope that you have penned in that chapter? You know, everyone has a future blackboard. We humans are future-based people, everything. From this second, you're already writing onto your future blackboard. Most often, we don't put in little things. We put in more major things on our future blackboard. It's just that once we write something on it, it stays on there until that time has come and passed. I struggled with that greatly because most everything on my future blackboard included my child. Mm. So I had to let things like graduating from high school and graduating from university pass. And it wasn't until I took a look at my future blackboard and saw how empty it was that I realized I needed to write something on it. Otherwise, I had no future. And that's where I finally sat down four years ago and wrote Forever Calais Mom on it and committed myself to writing this book. The story of, uh, of her life and your life, how would you describe this as a book that would uh, benefit someone who reads this? What is the hope that you have in sharing the story? 
I think my hope is that we're we're more open to talking about things that maybe we're afraid of. But most important is every single parent I've talked to said the one thing they miss the most is saying their child's name. Mm. So to me, that was where Forever Calais's mom came in. I'm communicating, you know, three things. One, I'm still her mom. Two, I get to say her name. And three, by identifying myself in that way, I'm telling people, I'm okay to talk to you about her. You don't have to be afraid to ask. That's what I hope, is that eventually we're okay with hearing the names of the children who have died and be open to uh, supporting parents in that way. Do you feel that the reader is going to leave the last page of your book and feel uplifted by the the outcome of what you have discovered? I think there'll be a whole bunch of words they'll feel at the end <laughs> of the book. Yes. Changed is probably the one that I, I have been hearing the most uh, from people who said have read the, read the book. They said that they felt like they walked in my shoes, they felt my emotion, and they walked away changed. Some weren't changed because of the death experience. Some took parts of this, the different chapters and applied them just to their normal lives, the future blackboard being one of them. So changed. I hope people walk away changed. Do you feel also that this uh, maybe has some good insight into how we might be able to share with someone who has experienced a deep loss? Absolutely. Um, you know, we've worn out you know, anger, blame, uh, depression, those five stages of grief. Every single chapter in the book adds color to those words in ways that I think people will be able to understand and appreciate more. Loreen, thank you for sharing your story and this very difficult, difficult story that you have shared forever. Kayleigh's mom, a story about life, my child's death, and what forever really means. Loreen Huliski has been my guest. Lorene, where do we get copies of this book? Well, right now it's it's all available only online uh, because I'm in Canada. The, the best place is to go to Chapters Indigo, but it's also available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Do you think there may be a, a follow-up book to this release? There is a follow-up book. It's one that I've been thinking about. Uh, I know I'm brave enough to write it, I don't know if I'm brave enough to publish it yet. <laughs> well, best of luck on this uh, this particular book, and hopefully, a lot of uh, a lot of readers will uh, join in the experience of uh, of what you've shared. The title again is "Forever Kayleigh's Mom: A Story of Life, My Child's Death, and What Forever Really Means." Lorene Holiski has been my guest. Thank you, Lorene, for being part of today's program. You're very welcome. My pleasure for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Park. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Do you ever wonder if you're the only woman who runs errands in her yoga pants so it will look like she went to the gym? Or how about the only mom who feeds her kids raw cookie dough? Or are you the only one who cooks her family cold cereal for dinner? Do you need more laughter and less loudness? More self-love and less self-loathing? 
more joy and less judgment, you're not alone. Come to The Living Room, a place where we get comfy, candid, and confident together. Come seeking sanctuary and leave feeling renewed. We are saving a seat for you. Give yourself some living room today. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio. Greetings for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled In Shadows, and our author, D.R. Willis, joins me from near Savannah, Georgia. Welcome, sir, to the program. Hi, Jay, and uh, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate this. I'm sorry to take you away from your primary focus. In addition to being an author, you're also involved in an industry that many of us crave. What is that industry, sir? Oh, well, um, we, my family makes uh, chocolate. Actually, I'm the one that, um, that uh, makes most of the chocolate shapes that we sell for the holidays and novelty items. Um, so I do that maybe 11 hours a day. Incredible. Uh, you have you have my envy uh, on many levels because of that. This is your second book in a series titled In Shadows. Share with my listeners where the idea for this book came from and what In Shadows is all about. Well, a lo- actually, uh, a long time ago, uh, I started writing um, for, for um, my uh, mom who... Um, got diabetes, so she, she became legally blind. So I started writing short stories for uh, her and reading to her. And this is going back quite a ways. This is actually the mid-'80s, late-1980s. So um, that it kind of uh, spawned from there. Um, I stopped writing for a while, and all of a sudden it, uh, the story idea came to me that I wanted to do something a little bit longer than a short story, and um, the whole idea came to me uh, rather suddenly. Uh, it's almost as if I woke up with the idea. In the story In Shadows, where does it begin? What's the setting, and what is the premise of the book? Well, the um, the setting is uh, actually right after the war, uh, World War II. So it's around 1940. Actually, this this is uh, pretty much weeks after World War II. So it's in the mid-1940s. It is set in, um, actually it's set in two places. It's set in a in a small town um, near Savannah, a fictional town, and it's also set in a, uh, a small fictional town in New Jersey. And it, it follows um, the father of my main character that was in the first book. Uh, my, the first book, uh, his name was uh, Nick Davis, and, um, the, the, uh, and that's set in present times, and now in shadows follows his father and how he gets um, caught up in, uh, I guess you could say, um, with the um, espionage, is a, is a good way to say it. Espionage. Your first book was titled Lonely Deception. Is it important for the reader to read that book? I know from an author's standpoint it is, but is it important to understand the concept of of uh, lonely deceptions in order to understand in shadows? Well, what I tried to do was I tried to make um, each book, because I also have a, a third book coming out entitled uh, Cascading Lies, which will wrap up the trilogy. But I tried to make each book a standalone book. And, of course, as you said, as an author, I would love it if the reader read Lonely Deceptions first, because it would uh, make it a bit better for them for In Shadows. But uh, in reality, uh, they could just read In Shadows uh, uh, by itself. 
and still enjoy the story. Is it character-driven, or is it action and, uh, uh, I guess, existence-driven? I would say it's more character-driven because I have um, um, a lot of, uh, I want to say, relationships going on, and um, you never quite know uh, who is who and who is um, deceiving who. But the, 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 uh, throughout all of it, the, the strongest bond is between Nick Davis and his father, Nelson Davis, uh, like a true uh, bond of love between the father and the son, even though they're constantly fighting to uh, find the truth of what is happening um, to make their life so uh, miserable, I guess is, is a good way to say it. You have mentioned that In Shadows is set just following World War II. Did you need to do a lot of research, or because it's character-driven, was it simply a matter of crafting the characters to set that set in that uh, that time frame? No, I, I I actually did do a lot of research. I I mean I I, I always do um, research even when I was writing the uh, book that Lonely Deceptions, which is in present time. But I um, I did do a lot of background research on uh, World War II, uh, and of course that era, how they spoke. I watched. I watched movies that were made in the 1940s. I read a few, you know, um, I tried to read a few excerpts of uh, books that was written in the 1940s. I just tried to get the flavor of that era, even though I wasn't uh, actually around then. Uh, You used the word flavor, and I'm thinking again of chocolates. I'm sorry. Chocolates reminds me of uh, several things. First of all, you spend a lot of time in your craft as a chocolatier, and now you're developing your craft as a writer. How do you have time for both? Very good question. A lot of people ask me that because um, uh, people, a lot of people come into the store to actually buy my book because I have some here at the store so that they can get it signed. And that is their number one question. How do I have the time? Because they see me in the store all the time. <laughs> so what I do is I get up at, yeah, I get up about 3.30 in the morning. Oh, boy. And uh, I write, well, yeah, I write around 4.30 to 6 a.m. every single day. So seven days a week, I do that. And then if I have my research, I try to do in the evening, even though I'm, I'm kind of tired. So that's, that's what I try to keep that regimen. I try not to miss any days because I, I, I do love writing. So that hour and a half uh, whizzes by. And then I come to the uh, store, uh, and we're here for about, again, it's my family. It's uh, all, all Things Chocolate and More is the name of the, of the uh, family chocolate store. It's my mother-in-law, my father-in-law, my wife, our 14-year-old daughter, and myself that uh, makes chocolate. That's amazing discipline. Many of my writers uh, don't necessarily approach the craft of being an author the way you do. Some will just write from inspiration. They'll get a, an idea for a story and just sit down and let it run, let the story control the direction that the uh, the storyline takes. You apparently uh, actually have an outline that you work from. Is that the right way to describe how you have crafted this? Yes, I do have a, uh, a mental outline. I never write it down, but I do have a, a mental or I, sh- I should say I have an idea of where I want to go, kind of how I want it to begin and end, and then I sort of have to fill out, you know, fill out the middle part of it, the most important part. But, um, well, actually, or the ending is, could be the most important part. But what I do, very briefly, is I, I uh, write in the morning, as I said, and then throughout the day as I'm making chocolate, um, I kind of play out the next scene in my head over and over again with all different kinds of dialogues and 
and reaction to the character. So by the time I sit down the next morning, it's almost written already, and I've kind of known uh, how I want to approach it. Beautiful. In writing In Shadows, was there a, a message that popped out that perhaps you hadn't been planning on sharing with the reader, but it did show up? I think, because um, as I'm writing my books, um, no matter how I try, I always get to more of a suspense-driven story. And even though I there's all these, uh, again, uh, espionage and, and spy things going around and some some murders and um, there's, it's always more about relationships which always surprise me how they feel um, you know they could just break down and weep and um, I think the, the emotion always surprises me and, and how it, it also affects me sometimes what's the underlying message do you think does it have anything to do with uh, you mentioned you're in a family business do that, any of your... well family that's exactly the that that is it you're you're right jay it's it's uh, how important family is no matter um what life bestows upon you um how you react um in relationship with your family is very important other people have read your works what has then been the response of your first novel Lonely Deceptions, and have you had an opportunity to share in shadows with some of those people, and what have they said about it? Yes, I've had a lot of people come back to me that they like Lonely Deceptions, and it's come out with some favorable reviews uh, from Kirkus and other um, uh, review houses uh, did like Lonely Deceptions. Yes, we've, we've had uh, quite a few people read in shadows, and they've come back to me and they said, I, I think we like this even better. A word that they've been using is kind of edgy. They mm. just feel it's, it's just more edgy. Uh, they just like they just seem to like it better, more suspense, more of a thriller. You have 138 pages, not a long read. However, uh, in this 138 pages, is it one that's going to appeal to a broad audience? Is it more directed towards a mature audience? How would you describe it? Well, to another good question, I would say... At the very end, or towards the end, um, when someone... I, I don't want to give away the uh, story plot, because um, a lot of my story has uh, many twists and turns in it, but there, there's someone that the father, something that the father, Nelson Davis, finds out uh, as a result of, of this action that is um, that uh, would be that, what you had described as adult-like. Okay. Well, suspense, you've mentioned that that's important for your readers, and apparently you are doing the same with uh, your descriptive of In Shadows. Uh, David, where do we get copies of <laughs> your book? Where do we get copies of your book? Uh, well, if you happen to live near Savannah, you could always pop in my store. Obviously, you would get it uh, signed, but you can um, purchase it at all things. I'm sorry, um, you could purchase it at uh, barnesandnoble.com, amazon.com. Uh, I have a, a website, D. R. Willis books.com and of course I'm on Twitter and Facebook. You're welcome to follow me or like me. Uh, you can get it through all those avenues and you are you should be able to also purchase it at your store. If they don't have it um, you can just order it from them at your local store. Absolutely and uh, listeners be on the lookout for the next in this trilogy this particular edition is titled In Shadows his first book Lonely Deceptions. David, thank you for joining me today and sharing your story. There will be more to come, and how soon will that be released? 
Uh, thank you, Jay. And uh, actually, the third book and the uh, conclusion of the trilogy should be released um, in less than two months. And it's entitled Cascading Lines. Phenomenal. And it wraps it all up. Phenomenal. Maybe not, maybe not neatly, but it wraps it all up. <laughs> well, for a chocolatier to wrap it up, I think that's uh, that's a great way to uh, to describe the writing of the trilogy. Thank you for joining me today, David. Oh, thank you very much. I, again, I appreciate this. My pleasure for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.